Hey, let's pray, and let's dig right into this. Good to be here this morning. I always think of that psalm where it says, Lord, I was glad when they said, let us go into the house of the Lord. We are glad to be here, to learn of you, to grow in you, to go deeper in you. We thank you for this time. You teach, we listen, let you be glorified. Help us keep our heart, mind, and soul focused on you in your name. Amen. Uh, real quick, extra announcement. Uh, forgot to get in the bulletin. December 21st is Christmas Praise Night, December 21st. So if you would like to do a Christ-centered Christmas special, please mark that on your calendar, the 21st. You can see Marv if you've got any questions about that. And if you want to come out and just be a part of that, wonderful service. God gets the glory as we celebrate Christmas. And uh, keep that on your calendar. It's December 21st. Alrighty, Proverbs 31. We are in our last chapter in the book of Proverbs. I believe we started Proverbs last August, meaning August of 2018, not 2019. Takes us a while to get through some of these books. We are going to be doing two studies in Proverbs 31, and that should finish up Proverbs 31 next week. What makes Proverbs 31 interesting is this. It's a lot like Proverbs chapter 30, where Proverbs chapter 30, we had the words of Agur, and we talked about who he was, and now we have the words of King Lemuel, the utterance which his mother taught him, verse 1. King Lemuel, who was he? This is all we know about him. There's no other reference to King Lemuel in the Bible. Some people believe that it was kind of a pet name for Solomon because Lemuel and Solomon in the Hebrew have very similar ideas. Some people believe he was a king north of Israel. The reality is this, we don't know. And I just keep this really simple point in the Bible. When, when God doesn't go into details of who a person like this is, then he's saying you don't need to worry about it. So we don't know who King Lemuel is, but we're going to read about him here. Now, we do know from studying out the Bible that the Bible says that there were other wise kings that also spoke in Proverbs and that they were recorded as well. So therefore, Solomon was not the only one, so we have a recorded chapter of this. Now, the interesting thing about this, though, which we're going to get to in a little bit, it's the utterance which his mother taught him. The utterance with his mother taught him. That's a really neat point, because especially as you get to the second half of Proverbs 31, the great chapter on what a godly wife and mother looks like, this king is repeating what his mom taught him, but yet it's the utterance, verse 1. Depending on your translation, other than utterance, it may say oracle, inspired message, words of God. We talked about this last week with Agur. These are not just mere words. These words are the words of God. That is it. So when this was being written down, they understood that they were speaking forth for the Lord. Now, in the world we live in today, there's lots of authors, there's lots of speakers, TV personalities, family members, friends, and their words carry a lot of weight with you. I'm asking you right now to stop and think of how much more weight should the Word of God carry in your life. If we are willing to listen to people on TV that we have never met face-to-face, and we think they're an expert because of titles in front of their names, how much more should we stop and say, this 66 books of the Bible written by God, should we not allow this to carry weight into our life? Because it is the inspired word of God that's that important. So I'm asking you to do me a favor this week. To understand the importance of God's word, I want you to take some time and just read one chapter in the Bible. That's all I'm asking you to do. Psalm 119. Take some time this week and read Psalm 119, 119, one chapter. Now, a little bit of a catch to it. It's 176 verses. It's the longest chapter in the Bible, but I'm only asking you to read one chapter. Of the 176 verses, 171 of the 176 verses mentions the word of God. That's how this, this whole chapter is about the preeminence of God's word. So when I was going through Psalm 119 preparing for this, I wanted to pick out some verses about the Word of God. There's just so many in there. I just picked two of them. Psalm 119, 128. Therefore, all your precepts, 
all, all the points in God's word, all your precepts concerning all things I consider to be right. I hate every false way. So God's, all of God's precepts are right. And then Psalm 119, 160, the entirety of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. The entirety of your word is truth. It reminds me of what Jesus said in the Gospels where he says, your word is truth. In this world we live in today where everybody has their own idea of truth, we need to get back to God's word and understand this is truth. This is what leads us, guides us, and directs us. So when it says the utterance which his mother taught him, the holy inspired word of God. Now, his mother taught him. This is kind of a little rare in the Bible. Most of the time when you look, think of the Bible, you think of these men and these men writing books. But then you get to a chapter like this where, yes, it was written by King Lemuel, but he's really repeating what his mom taught him growing up, the importance of the mom. Now, I don't know who has kids for sure, who doesn't have kids. Maybe your kids have grown up. Maybe you don't have any. You're in a different season of life. The reality of what's going to be taught here is not affected upon that, but I do want to talk about real quick the idea of the moms raising their kids, just real quick. Generally speaking, what I see in our household, we've got seven kids in our house, there's so much activity, so much activity. It never stops with, with the laundry, it never stops with the dishes, it never stops with picking up, it never stops with anything. There's just so much going on. So busy raising the kids, we forget we're supposed to be teaching them. And I want us to slow down for a second and just realize here, this mom is teaching them. That word for teach there carries the idea of instructing, and not only instructing, carry the idea of disciplining them. That this is your focus in ministry is to raise these kids up for Jesus Christ and all we do and say. We focus so much on how the house is decorated and how clean the house is and all that other type of stuff. Now let's raise our kids in Christ Jesus. Get that foundation laid there. And so this is what's happening. And I just started going through some of the moms in the Bible. Some of the moms and just the different ones that you really see the blessing they had on the generations following. You think of Timothy. You know, Paul that wrote 1 Timothy 2 and 2 Timothy 2. You know, his grandma Lois, his mom Eunice that raised him in the faith, that they're mentioned specifically. You think of Moses' mom, Jochebed. Think about that. She birthed Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Those three were vital when, when the nation of Israel came out of Egypt. Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, and she is mentioned in Hebrews 11 as this great woman of faith. You think about Mary that raised Jesus. Think that through for a second. You're raising the Messiah. You're raising, a, and as we can best we can figure out, Mary probably had Jesus at maybe 15, 16 years old, and you're raising God. That's why in Luke chapter 2 it said, Mary kept these things in her heart and pondered them. That's a lot to chew on, but yet she did. And then one of my favorites is Hannah. If you remember Hannah from 1 Samuel, she didn't have any children, went and prayed for a child, God blessed her with the child, and then she said, I will give the child back to the Lord. So that's what she did. So she then went, when she weaned her child, gave the child back to the Lord. So he served at the temple, and then I love it, in 1 Samuel 2, every year when she came to the temple to do her sacrifices, she would make him a little priestly robe. I just think that'd be the cutest thing to see. There's little Samuel, and at five, he gets his little robe. At six, he gets a little bit bigger robe, and just it keeps encouraging him. So you see this relationship. Take a look at verse two. What, my son, and what son of my womb, and what son of my vows? 
You see the word son there repeated three times because it's talking about the different relationships that you have with your child, mom. First off, he is your son, just plain out son. There is a relationship. You will spend a lot of time with your son. Train them, raise them, instruct them. Number two, what son of my womb? He is your offspring. He is your flesh and blood. There is a connection there that God gave you that child. God gave you that child to raise and instruct in the Lord. And then lastly, number three, son of my vows, that you are spiritually blessed and spiritually responsible for this child. You have a vow to God that you're going to raise this child in a godly way. This is why when we do a child dedication, we do it in front of the church because this person is saying, I want the accountability of the church to help me raise this child. My vow is to raise this child in a godly home. So you see the son, the relationship, spend a lot of time with them, offspring, flesh and blood, and then now also the spiritual side of it, son of my vows. So now she stops and says, this is the advice. Now, ready? Here we go. What advice would you give the generation coming up? Now we're looking past the idea of just your son, just your kid. Just if you're going to talk to the generation coming up, and this applies to us as adults as well, what's the advice you would give? The first advice she gives, verse 3, do not give your strength to women. Boy, stay away from the girls. That's the first advice she gives. Watch out for the women. That's a fascinating bit of advice to start out with there. Let's go and look at an example of what happens when you don't watch out for that. Can you go with me to 1 Kings 11? Now, as you're going to 1 Kings 11, I have to do this, because if I don't do this, you guys always get upset at me, and you come after me after I teach. I'm an equal opportunity offender. I want to pick on the women. I'm going to pick on the men. Because what happens is I teach something like this where it says watch out for the women and then you women come up and you say, well, why aren't you saying watch out for the men? Because the Bible says don't worry about the men. You women are the problem. That's what the Bible says. <laughs> I'm kidding. It goes both ways. So the way I'm going to teach this is watch out for the opposite sex. That's what I'm saying here. Watch out for the opposite sex. Because what happens is I have seen this so often. Godly men compromise their walk in faith for a pretty girl. I have seen godly women compromise their faith for vomit. They will, because the Bible says, do not return to the vomit, and you see them jumping back into these vomit relationships again and again and again. You see these people that desire to grow deeper in the Lord compromising their growth and faith in Jesus Christ for somebody of the opposite sex. It's a dangerous, dangerous thing. So the first bit of advice she gives, don't give your strength to the women. That's great advice. I, I wish I could get the quote down exactly, and I should have brought it with me, but I remember hearing a pastor talk about his daughter, that he wanted his daughter to be so in love with Jesus that a man has to find Jesus first before he even meets his daughter. Because Jesus is just the foundation of her life. She, he is everything to her. So any man that wants to know his daughter has to know who Jesus Christ is first deeply. But the problem is we have this great walk with the Lord until that really cute guy or gal comes around and it's like, okay, Jesus, you're on the back burner. And I'm going to compromise the things that I know are right just for somebody of the opposite sex. The greatest example, I think, in the Bible of that is Solomon in 1 Kings 11. If you see the compromises he makes for somebody of the opposite sex, verse 1 of 1 Kings 11. King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, the Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and the Hittites. 
from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you should not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after these gods. Solomon clung to these in love. That word clung is a strong word in Hebrew. He was in love with them. All these foreign women, he was in love with them. How many? Verse 3, he had 700 wives, princes, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Think that through for a second. A thousand women. His heart clung to them. His wives turned away his heart. What was it about it? I don't know. The foreign women, they looked a little different. Their accents were a little different. They dressed a little different. I need to get one from each of the countries. At this point, Solomon is the wisest, richest, most powerful man in the world. He could have whatever he wants, so what does he collect? He collects women. And so as he collects these women, his heart turns away. Verse 4, For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went over Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow, follow fully the Lord as did his father. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemish, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. He built temples for them. The guy that built the temple for God is now building altars for other gods. Verse 8, And he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel who appeared to him twice. Now, I know that if you're here this morning and you're born again and saved, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. That's amazing. God lives inside of you, and you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Solomon had God appear to him twice. Can you imagine that? God appeared to this man twice. So he knew God two times personally, and he still says, yeah, I'm going to serve these other gods. Why? My wife likes them. Which wife? I don't know, one of the 700. Verse 10. And he had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. An example of what happens when you allow your lust, your love for the opposite sex to get into your life and you compromise in the Lord. Your heart belongs fully to the Lord and do not compromise on that. That's why the first bit of advice is do not give your strength to women. And this goes for anything with the opposite sex. Let's go to one more example here in the Old Testament. Can you go with me to Numbers 25, please? Numbers 25. I think one of the dangers that you see in relationships with people of the opposite sex is the first thing you notice about them is generally the physical attraction. So what happens is you see them and you are physically attracted to them. And then once you get to know them, you become emotionally attracted to them. And then if the spiritual is not there, you say, well, they're good looking, we get along, therefore two out of three ain't bad. That's the problem. The spiritual attraction has to be the key thing. You've got to have that foundation in the Lord. Because the problem is this, you can be physically attracted to them, you could work it out and be great friends, but unless you have that uni unity in Jesus Christ, there's no other foundation that can be laid other than the foundation of Christ. Right there, your relationship's already rocky to start with. You've got to get that foundation. Take a look here at Numbers 25. 
Now Israel remained in Achaia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. What's wrong with the people of Moab? Okay, let's rewind the clock a little bit. You guys remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed. Lot escapes with his two daughters. So from their perspective, they kind of think the whole world's been destroyed. So you got Lot with his two daughters. So Lot's two daughters have this great idea. Since it's just dad and us left, and the world's probably been destroyed, we don't have any offspring, so let's get dad drunk, and then let's have relationships with dad, so therefore we can at least have children. So Moab came out of a drunken ancestral relationship between a father and a daughter, and so that's why God said the people of Moab here have chosen to go this route. It comes back from their beginning. Don't go near them. They're bad people. Stay away. It's going to bring you down spiritually. Be a witness to them, but do not unite yourself with them. Well, verse 2, they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Verse 2 blows my mind. Hey, Israel, you want to come over to our sacrifice? Sure, why not? You want to worship our gods? Sure, why not? We're only the generation that came out and saw God part the Red Sea, pillar of fire, cloud. We saw, you know, the water come out of the rock. We saw the manna. We saw all these miracles of God. We saw the law given at Mount Sinai. But why not? Let's worship other gods. How quickly they compromised. Verse 3, So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out of the sun, that the fierce anger of the wrath of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Every one of you kill his men who are joined to Baal of Peor. Now stop right there. Don't read ahead. And I know you want to, but don't read ahead. God says this is so serious. Leadership, step up. And you have to now judge those that are bringing this idolatry and this harlotry in because it will destroy us as a nation. It will destroy. It's not some personal vendetta against Moab. The reality is their false gods, their false worship is going to come in and destroy us. So we need to judge this immediately. Verse 6, And indeed, one of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses, in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel, who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So one guy has the audacity to go before the leadership who is in weeping mourning over this sin, in front of the tabernacle, which is the presence of God, and he brings his foreign Midianite woman and flaunts her right in front of everybody. He did this, it looks like, on purpose. Moses in leadership is weeping over the sin that's come into the camp. They're at the presence of God, and here comes this guy with his Midianite woman and shows her off. Verse 7. Now when Phinehas, the son of Elziar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he arose from among the congregation, took a javelin in his hand. He went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through her body, so the plague was stopped among the children of Israel. You don't hear that taught on in Sunday school too very often, do you? Have you ever seen a flannel graph with the spear going through two people there on the little felt boards? No, you don't. What does this show? Dads, this is not a verse of when your daughter starts dating. Just keep that in the back of your mind. What this is, is to show how much God says an inappropriate, unbiblical relationship with somebody of the opposite sex is going to be hurtful. It's going to bring you down. Cannot stress that to you enough. 
I have heard so many reasons and excuses over the years, so many. Well, you know what? We're growing deeper in the Lord together, and I, I think he's going to come around and get saved. I think she's going to come around and get saved. And I tell them the same thing every time. 1 Corinthians 13 says love is patient. If you love this person enough, break off the relationship, come back in six months and see where they're at with the Lord then. Yeah, but if I'm not involved with them, if I'm not witnessing and discipling, they're not going to get saved. No, let somebody of the same sex witness and disciple them. Because if they truly do love the Lord, they're going to have their heart want to go towards Christ and God will bring somebody into their life. But if they're only doing this because of you, it's not going to work out at all. They have to love Christ more than they love you and you have to love Christ more than you love them. Because if not, it's going to fall apart. Real quick, can you go with me now to um, Proverbs 5? Proverbs 5. As you're going to Proverbs 5, you may be kind of wondering, why did this happen in numbers like this? Well, we have to give you a little bit of background. In Numbers 23 and 24, if you remember the story correctly, the king, Balak, had come to the prophet Balaam and said, hey, can you curse Israel for me? Israel's becoming too big, too powerful. I need them brought down. So will you go curse them for me since you're a prophet of God? Balaam says, I can only say what comes out of my mouth because what God gives me. So Balaam gets up three times, tries to curse Israel, and each time he tries to curse Israel, he actually blesses Israel. That's the story of Balaam. You remember that in Numbers 23 and 24. Then we have this really strange story in Numbers 25 of these women of Moab come, and where did this all come from? We know from Numbers 31 that since Balaam couldn't curse them, Balaam went to the king of Moab and said, hey, I got another idea. Send your pretty girls over to Israel. That's how we'll take them down. I can't curse them, but what we can do is this. Send your pretty girls over, and what will happen is the foreign women will attract them, and they'll come down via this. Balaam was smart enough to know, send the pretty girls over, and the men will compromise. That's exactly what happened. How many godly men and godly women have compromised for something of the opposite sex? Let's remind ourselves a little bit here what Proverbs says about this. Proverbs chapter 5, please. Proverbs 31 is also a nice little review chapter because it hits some of the main points we've covered before. Proverbs chapter 5, start in verse 3 with me. For the lips of an immoral woman drip honey. Her mouth is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood. Sharp as a two-edged sword, her feet go down to death, her steps lay hold of hell, lest you ponder her path of life. Her ways are unstable, you do not know them. Therefore hear me now, my children, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Remove your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the cruel one. Stay away. Stay away. Verse 15, same chapter. Drink water from your own cistern. Running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be only your own and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife or youth as a loving deer and a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times. Always be enraptured with her love. Remember that word enraptured. For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman and be embraced in the arms of a seductress? You got your own fountain at home. Stay with your own fountain. Purity in marriage. Purity until marriage. Be blessed in that. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 24. Verse 23 says, The law is a light. Why is the law a light? Verse 24. To keep you from the evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a seductress. Do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread. An adulteress will prey upon a precious life. Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? 
so is he who goes to his neighbor's wife, whoever touches her should not be innocent. When we did this study, you know, months ago, we went and talked about David and Bathsheba. You can't bring fire and not get burned. David did everything he could to cover up his affair, and it all blew up in front of him. I'm telling you right now, an inappropriate, unbiblical relationship with somebody of the opposite sex is going to come back to bite you. God's word is warning us this again and again and again. Jump back now to Proverbs 31. That's the first bit of advice that we have. What's the next bit of advice that we have now? Verse 3 says, Nor are your ways to that which will destroy kings. So what will destroy kings? Verse 4. It's not for kings, O Lemuel. It's not for kings to drink wine, nor for the prince's intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to those who are bitter of heart. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. Next bit of advice. Watch out for the alcohol. Now, this is something we've got to be a little careful about because biblically it's wrong to get drunk. The Bible does not say it's wrong to drink. It's wrong to get drunk. Now, the problem is some people can't stop after one. So one becomes two, becomes three, becomes four, becomes five. They shouldn't drink at all out of protection. Now, there are a couple points here, though, that the Bible does say. One right here, verse 4, if you're a king, you shouldn't be drinking. That's not good for leadership at all. Ecclesiastes says this, chapter 10. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your prince's feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobles and your prince's feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. One of the worst things you can have as a kingdom is a drunk king. It says in 1 Timothy 3 that elders shouldn't be drinking. You don't want a drunk pastor. Can you imagine? I don't drink. I believe the Bible teaches me that I should not drink. I do not drink. Can you imagine calling me up saying, hey, James, I really want to talk to you. And I'm like, hey, man, I'm sorry. I'm half out of it right now. Get a phone call saying, hey, so-and-so's at the ER. Sorry, can't drive. No. That's just ridiculous to even stop and think about that. And not even that, it also talks about the prophets. This is out of the New Living Translation, Isaiah 28. It says, now, however, Israel is led by drunks who reel with wine and stagger with alcohol. The priest and the prophets stagger with alcohol and lose themselves in wine. They reel when they see visions and staggers they render decisions. So the Bible is warning kings, spiritual leaders, priests and prophets, stay away from the alcohol. Not much good comes out of alcohol. It just doesn't. Can you go with me to Daniel chapter 5? Take a look at someone who is in leadership that lets alcohol get the best of him and how it turns out for him. Daniel chapter 5. People usually don't make very good decisions while drunk. I don't know if I've ever met anybody who says, you know what, the best decisions I've ever made is when I'm drunk. No. Nothing good comes out of that. I've shared this with you, this story before. Years ago, there was an individual that was struggling with alcohol and got themselves into a situation. So Rich and I went and met with them just to encourage them, help them, point them in the right direction. And we're sitting there eating at the restaurant and just talking about stuff. And I'm, and I'm giving them all the Bible verses. I'm giving them all the theology on, on what the Bible says about drinking and alcohol. And this is something that I can only tell you what the Bible says. I don't experience it. I can remember back before I got saved, going to some high school parties and drinking and hating the taste of alcohol. Hating it. I remember telling somebody one time how much I hate the taste of alcohol. And they said, well, it's an acquired taste. I thought, well, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. If I don't like the taste of it, why do I have to acquire it? I hate green beans. I'm not trying to acquire that taste. You know, I just <laughs> skip over that. So if I have to acquire the taste of it, I don't know why I'm trying to acquire it. 
So I can give them the theology, I can give them the verses, and God's word doesn't return void, but this individual is really struggling with this. You know, and I had Richard with her. It's Richard, me, and this, and this young man. And so Richard, who has struggled down this path before, if you guys know his testimony, um, we're sitting there eating, and I'm, like I said, giving the verses, giving him all these points, and he's listening, but I can tell it's just really not, it doesn't seem to be clicking. Richard takes a bite of food, waits, swallows it, and he just, just throws this little line out there. goes, never wrecked my car while sober, and just goes right back to eating. The words of Richard, the wisdom of Richard, that's the point that got across. Never wrecked my car while sober, meaning you make better choices sober than you do drunk. Now, folks, we know this. We know this. Why is it? We'll get to it, the why, in a little bit of the allure of it. What happens when you allow that alcohol to get into you? All your senses go out the window. We have the story now in Daniel chapter 5 of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, being besieged by the Medes and Persians. They're in their protected city, undefeatable in this city. But yet this is what happens. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now Belshazzar, king, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. So they're getting besieged and they decide to throw a party to show that they have no fear, no worry, no concern. And let's bring out the wine. Problem one. Kings shouldn't be doing this. Verse 2. Now while he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem that the king and his lord, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Problem number two. Now you're starting to mock God. Let's take the gold and silver utensils from the temple of Jehovah in Israel and let's drink out of them, folks. This is dangerous. Verse 3. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the God of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Mocking God, false worship, drunkenness. Verse 5, in the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. Fear, absolute, utter fear. They're half drunk, partying, besieged, mocking God, and then a hand appears and writes on the wall. Jump ahead, what happens? Verse 30, same chapter. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Alcohol does not mix well with spiritual leadership, prophets, leaders, anything like that. Be very, very discerning if you decide to go ahead with it. What's the draw? A couple more quick verses on this. Can you go with me to Ephesians 5, please? Because obviously there's a draw to it. The way it makes you feel. The taste. Supposed fun. We're looking for something. We're looking for that high. We're looking for that buzz. We're looking for something. There's a reason why strong alcohol is also known as what? Spirits. Because there's something about it, right? Then you get Ephesians 5.18. Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. See, to me, the Bible's telling me there's two opposites here. I can either get my little uh, high from the wine or I can get my high from the Spirit. So which one am I going to choose? Because it's going to give me a good feeling, for a while at least, right? 
So look at the verses before and after, because context is always important. Look at 17. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not be drunk with wine. So wisdom shows me that God's will is to not be drunk. So therefore, if I choose to go out and let alcohol control me, I am being unwise and immature in the Lord. Well, where am I supposed to get this fun from? Well, look at 18. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. That there is this joy in the Lord. There's this joy in the Spirit that comes from going deeper in the Lord that trumps whatever else you could find in a bottle. We used to have a guy um, came out here. I love this guy. Just, just one of those guys that you like. He's one of those non-believers that you just loved. Just friendly, nice guy. Had an issue with alcohol many times over. And we had picked him up from jail before. We had ministered to him. And his family, lost his family and everything. Started coming out to church. And we had done a, a church softball game, actually, that Sunday. And we went up to Hamler and played. And this was a lot of years ago. And I remember him coming up to me because he spent the whole day with Dawn and I and the church and everything. And I remember he looked at me and he says, I've never had this much fun sober. I remember him saying that. I've never had this much fun sober. To realize that it could change your life, to realize that you can have a joy of the Lord through the Spirit that actually can carry you through the day because of who God is and how good God is. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Proverbs, please, now. Proverbs chapter 23, a couple quick verses on this. Proverbs 20, verse 1, as you're going to 23, says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler. Whoever is led astray by it is not wise. To walk in this alcohol is not wise. Proverbs chapter 23, a couple quick review verses that we've gone over before. Start in verse 19 with me. Hear, my son, and be wise, and guide your heart in the way. Do not mix with wine bibbers or with gluttons, eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and drowsiness will clothe the man with rage. Careful with the drinking, and be careful around the people that do drink. It's just not worth it, folks. Just not worth it. Do not mix with them. 29, same chapter. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long at the wine. Those who go in search of mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things. Your heart will utter perverse things. Yes, you'll be like the one who lies down in the midst of the sea or like the one who lies at the top of the mast saying, They have struck me but I was not hurt. They have beaten me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake that I may seek another drink? Isn't that the truth? Things happen when you start drinking, and you don't even know what you get to look at 29. Who has wounds without cause? I don't even remember getting this. I've had people go, I don't even know how I got this bruise. I don't even know how I got cut by doing that. It tastes good, it sounds good, but at 32, it bites like a serpent, it stings like a viper. See strange things, heart will utter perverse things. If you've ever been around anybody who's drunk, the things that come out of their mouth. I used to have this guy that would call me up when drunk. And he would call me up. I'd answer the phone. He'd say, Pastor? I'd say, yeah, I'm drunk. And you called me? Of all the numbers you could have called, you called your pastor to tell him you're drunk? So then I would see him the next time. And I'm like, and he goes, did I call you? And I'd say, yeah. He goes, I don't know why I call you. I said, I don't know why you call me either when you're drunk. I don't know why you're calling me. It makes me pray for you, I'll tell you that. 
And it makes you embarrassed later on that hopefully you're convicted to change. But we start saying these things. We start doing these things. But what happens is 35, they struck me. I wasn't hurt. They beat me. I don't feel it. It numbs me. I wake up and what can I drink again? Oh my goodness, the stories that we've all heard about the power of alcohol or someone's life. The wisdom is what? Stay away. But then why does it say verses 6 and 7? Get strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to those who are bitter of heart. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. Do you realize what this is really saying? Those that want to perish, those that want to give up, those that want to be bitter, those that want to forget life, those that want to be depressed and discouraged, yeah, go ahead and drink because that's going to be the outcome of it. So if you're ready to give up on life, if you're ready to perish, if you're ready to be bitter, depressed, and discouraged, go ahead and drink because that's going to be the outcome of it. It's just not worth it. Last point, there's three points. The first one, watch out for people in appropriate relationships, opposite sex. Number two, alcohol. Last points, eight and nine, open your mouth for the speechless and the cause of all who are appointed to die. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and the needy. Be a voice for the voiceless. Those that are appointed to die, verse eight, some of your translation, those that are crushed, those that are destitute, those that are going towards destruction. Minister to them. Speak for them. Help them. Just, just listen to this verse. Romans 15, 13. Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. I know the God of hope. The God of hope gives me peace and joy. So therefore, when I run into somebody who is crushed, destitute, destructed, I want to give them hope. So therefore, I want to be a voice for the voiceless. I want to open my mouth for the speechless because these that are destitute, crushed, and destroyed, give them hope. The poor and needy, give them hope because God gives hope. Here's the problem with the poor and needy. They make, them feel, they make us feel uncomfortable. We don't want to look at the homeless guy holding the sign. We want to pass by him and hope he doesn't talk to us. People holding the sign at the corner of Walmart, we don't want to deal with them. We don't want to talk to them. We just want to drive right by they're out there, crushed, destitute, poor and needy. Now, at this point, before you get upset, there's two definitions of poor and needy in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs talks about the poor 35 times more than any other book in the Bible. Two types of poor. First poor, the poor that are lazy and they cause it themselves. God says, be careful of them, be weary of them, warned against them. The other poor, those are the ones who are supposed to help truly hurting. Be careful with making the quick judgment call on who the poor really are. How are you supposed to know the difference then, whether they're the lazy poor that caused it versus the poor that really need help? Guess what? Get to know them. Talk to them. Find out their story. Start to minister to them, and the truth will come out. And as the truth comes out, then you will have the wisdom of God. We have a tendency to neglect them when God says, find out the story, because you don't know until you start talking to them. You can make a judgment call just by looking at people, but you don't know sometimes. I tell you, the world sometimes just hates the poor. They want to neglect them. A couple weeks ago, I was at Walmart, and there was a uh, guy standing outside with his family at the corner there. It had a sign. They needed gas. They needed food. They needed formula. needed diapers. It was him, his wife, and two kids. So I parked, stopped, and went up and started talking to them. Found out they were from Belarus in the United States here trying to get supplies and money to get back home, get to where they needed to be. So ministered to them, talked to them, asked if they were believers, prayed with them, gave them some stuff, etc. So as I'm talking to them, truck pulls up. An older guy in the truck just starts berating us. Starts yelling at us. 
He's just saying, why are you talking to them? They're just trying to take you. They're just trying to do this type of stuff. So here I am talking to this couple. Got a truck yelling at me. So then the guy that I'm talking to, he asked me, he goes, what's he saying? I said, don't worry about what he's saying. It doesn't matter. So then he starts to get a little worked up. If you remember my story from a few weeks ago when I was trying to witness to the guy that was cutting my hair at Walmart, I thought he was going to kill me. And I thought, well, now I'm going to die in the Walmart parking lot because the guy from Belarus and the truck guy are going to get into a fight, and I'm going to be in the middle. Blessed are the peacemakers, but yet I'm the one that dies. That's what came across my mind. This guy in the truck, I'm assuming, assumption, so you've got to be careful, doubt he ever went up and talked to them. Doubt he wouldn't have tried to help them. I think he saw the sign, made a judgment call, and went from there. That's his call. But yet it just really showed me how People can get angry and upset. And that's what Proverbs warns about, is that we make the judgment call on the poor and needy, and we make these assumptions, and rather getting in there and saying, I want to represent the God of hope to you and who Jesus Christ is. Now, once I go to represent the God of hope, I may see that you're a swindler, and I may see that you're trying to take advantage of everybody, and then God will give me wisdom and discernment at that time to get away. But I don't know that until I start talking to you. And I need to go out and start these conversations and see what the Lord says. I just want to remind you what Proverbs says about the poor. Proverbs 29.7, the righteous consider the cause of the poor, but the wicked does not understand such knowledge. I'm going to tell you very selfishly, I want to help out the poor because it blesses me. If I help out the poor, I'm considered righteous. If I ignore the poor, I'm considered wicked. I don't want to be wicked in the eyes of God. Proverbs 22.9, he who has a generous eye will be blessed for he gives of his bread to the poor. I want to give my bread to the poor because guess what? I get blessed. I get to represent Jesus Christ, and the Bible says I'm also blessed by doing it. Proverbs 21.3, whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. When I cry out for help to the Lord, I want him to help me. So therefore, I need to go help the poor, because therefore, if I'm not helping the poor, I'll cry myself and not be heard. Proverbs 14.31, he who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker. He who honors him has mercy on the needy. I don't want to reproach God. I want to honor God. So I'm going to go out there and I'll talk to them, start a conversation, see where God takes it. I'm not worried about being taken advantage of because Christ set the example on the cross to basically say, here I am, take me. So Lord, it's yours anyway. I will go represent you to everyone I can. And I trust you'll give me wisdom and discernment in the midst of those conversations to know what I'm supposed to say and what I'm supposed to do and to know when I'm supposed to back out of those. But until that time... I'll go try to talk to them and see what the Lord's got in store because I want to represent the God of hope to every single person I run into. So final points here in Proverbs 31, 1 through 9. The wisdom, the inspired wisdom of God, careful of inappropriate relationships of the opposite sex, careful of alcohol, and careful of not being a voice for the voiceless. Careful of those things. Gets us into great shape for chapter, uh, the end of Proverbs 31, 10 through 31 next week. It's a great chapter on the role of a wife and a mom, but there's a lot of deep points in there for everybody as well, too, which will finish up our study in the book of Proverbs, Lord willing. Worship team, come forward here for the final song. Hey, as the worship team's coming in, let's pray this into our lives. Lord, help us to walk in the wisdom of God, to be wise and discerning in all relationships with people of the opposite sex. Lord, to be wise and discerning with the dangers of alcohol. And Lord, to be wise and discerning when it comes to representing you, the God of hope, to those that have no hope. Thank you, Lord, for who you are and what you're doing. You're a good God, and we love you, and we thank you in your name. Amen.
Our God is a consuming fire, a burning holy flame with glory and freedom. Our God is the only righteous judge, ruling over us with kindness and wisdom. We will keep our eyes on you. We will keep our eyes on you. A mighty fortress is our God. A sacred refuge is your name. Your kingdom is unshakable. With you forever we will reign. Our God is jealous for His own. None can comprehend His love and His mercy. Our God is exalted on His throne. High above the heavens forever He's worthy. We will keep our eyes on you. We will keep our eyes on you. So we can set our hearts on you. Lord, we will set our hearts on you. A mighty fortress is our God. A sacred refuge is your name. Your kingdom is unshakable. With you forever we will reign. A mighty fortress is our God. A sacred refuge is your name. Your kingdom is unshakable, with you forever we will reign, with you forever we will reign, with you forever we will reign. Our God is a consuming fire, burning holy flame with glory and freedom. Thank you, Lord, for being a good God, a God of grace and mercy. Help us to walk in that this week for you in all ways. In your name, amen. You guys have a good week and God bless.